Good morning, everybody. How are you today? I'm Dr. Sal Pachilla from San Diego, California at San Diego Plastic Surgeon. And I'm with Dr. Sam Ree from Paramus, New Jersey at Bergen Cosmetic. And of course, Dr. Sam Jajurakar at Sam Jajurakar from Dallas. How are you just doing this morning? Very well. I'm great. Awesome. Good morning. It's the first day of a time change. So we're up bright and early, but we have a very special guest Today, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Amanda Gossman, who is the Chair of Plastic Surgery at CSD Residency Program at UCSD Medical School. Amanda is a fantastic surgeon, a great person. I've known her actually since I think about 1999, I believe it's been a long time. Her and I were medical students the same year at medical schools, and we were interviewing for the same residency jobs around the country. So I've known her for, for a long, long time, but we've collaborated throughout the years with some philanthropy and, and some professional stuff. So Amanda, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation. Oh, fantastic. So before we get started, we just have a little bit of housekeeping. So I'm just going to be reading our disclaimer here. I will happily do. This show is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is for informational purposes only. Treatment and results may vary based upon the circumstances, situation, and medical judgment after appropriate discussion. Always seek the advice of your surgeon or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding medical care. And never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking advice because of something you may have heard in the show. Back to you, Sal. All right. Fantastic. So, Amanda, you, you did your training at T Southwestern in Dallas, correct? I did. I did indeed. Yes. <laughs> and then after that, so tell us a little bit about kind of what your training was and your fellowship. But I know you came to San Diego shortly afterwards. Yeah, San Diego is my first real job, but I did integrated residency in Dallas. And then I stayed there and did my pediatric cleaning facial fellowship. And then I did an additional year doing the what was then the Interplast Webster Fellowship, which was a traveling fellowship with Interplast, which is now Resurge. And it was really an amazing opportunity to travel around the world and not just go on short-term mission trips, but also work with academic centers that happenancy programs around the world. And that's kind of really what cinched it for me in terms of going into an academic career. So, so Amanda, I, I should have mentioned earlier, Amanda is a pediatric plastic surgeon, but also does a bit of adult plastic surgery. So Amanda, I know also very well through our philanthropy organization, Fresh Start Surgical Gifts. So she's one of the board members and medical program committee members and one of the, the pivotal surgeons that we, we continually work with for our children in a charity standpoint. So if you recall from one of our previous podcasts, we had Sherry Brett, who was the CEO and just, just fantastic organization. So, so Amanda, tell us a little bit about kind of your practice and, and kind of your, your role as the, the chair of plastic surgery there. Yeah, it's been very interesting. I, you know, our UCSD is, has a little bit of an interesting geography where we have like two big, busy hospitals that are separated from themselves. So I do maintain an adult practice, which I enjoy, but it's also important, I think, in terms of kind of keeping boots on the ground. But the majority of my clinical practice is at the Children's Hospital, which is separate, and I am in charge of our division over there, too. So it is a little bit challenging to kind of manage the reins at, at both the institutions. But, you know, I think it's also a great opportunity to develop longitudinal care for children who are in our community and, and find a, a landing pad for them to, you know, receive care as an adult and really try to work within what's really interesting cross-border healthcare system we have, especially for, for pediatric care. 
That's fantastic. So, and, you know, just a little bit about the landscape of San Diego. So UCSD is located across Route 5. And on one side of Route 5 is my organization, Scripps. It's Scripps Clinic, Scripps Health. And UCSD is on the opposite side. So to, to some extent, our two health systems are competitors from the organizational standpoint. But clearly, all of our surgeons and doctors collaborate pretty extensively. And, you know, I know quite a few folks in the division at UCSD and Rady Children's. And, and you know, we really are, are a really tight professional group, I think. So and obviously... As part of your job as the chairperson, you 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 were responsible for training residents, correct? And tell for our visitors, uh, for our listeners who don't necessarily know how a plastic surgeon is trained, could you maybe go a little bit into that as to how, from graduating medical school, one becomes a plastic surgeon and kind of what your responsibility is in, in training? Yeah, absolutely. It is a daunting responsibility. There, there are two pathways to become a plastic surgeon. So the traditional pathway is to complete a full general surgery residency. And then it's done essentially as a fellowship after that for an additional now three years. So at UCSD, we've actually had an, in, that's called an independent pathway. We've had a pathway, independent pathway for we're approaching 50 years, actually, so a very long time. In 2016, we started our integrated pathway, and that means that we take students right out of medical school. They don't do a formal general surgery program, but they go right into plastic surgery, and they do a lot of other rotations and clinical experiences and other specialties, but essentially they're within plastic surgery training for a total of six years. And then after that, there are a variety of different fellowship pathways that people can pursue, such as microsurgery. What I did was pediatric craniofacial. There's aesthetic surgery. There's gender-affirming surgery, hand surgery. So those are the most common ones. And it is challenging to try to transition from training people who are fully trained general surgeons to training medical students to not just be surgeons, but to also be physicians. And that's something that, you know, we've been, you know, kind of evolving into and has been an iterative process in, in some ways. But definitely we want to make sure that, you know, anyone that finishes the program is able to pass their board examination is going to be safe to practice without supervision. So it's a little bit different learner where we're taking, you know, actually a whole new generation of of people into a surgical specialty. And I think it's it's challenging for all of us to kind of, you know, I, I always feel like the old person, whereas like, well, back in my day, well, especially like in Dallas, was <laughs> very, very different training. That was before we had these safeguards to protect well-being of, of residents, such as duty hours. So a resident can only work 80 hours a week. They have manda mandatory time really for patient safety, but it hasn't entirely evolved on the educational side where that time period has transitioned into quite as effective a way of skills attainment. So, you know, all of that time that we spent operating and taking care of patients has mostly translated into us having to require longer training periods. So it, it is like a perpetual challenge to maintain the well-being of our physicians while they're working in a really difficult environment. Well, let's come, to that, come back to that in just a second. So just for our listeners, all four of us here have trained in an integrated program. The three of us, Jens at Michigan and Amanda, of course, at UT Southwestern. 
arguably one of the best training programs in the country. And all of us actually have done a fellowship. I myself have done two fellowships in aesthetic surgery. Dr. Jajurakar has done a full year fellowship in aesthetic surgery. And Dr. Bree has done a full craniofacial fellowship at UCLA. So, you know, we, we really, I think all four of us really see the, a tremendous value in, in the reputation of our training, as well as diving deep into the, the highest echelon of, of training. And that's getting a fellowship. So Samir, you, you train fellows now, correct? You do a, you're a preceptor in the, the aesthetic surgery fellowship in Dallas. So tell us a little bit about your experiencing, your experience in training fellows. Now you are, you are doing a little bit of a different job than Amanda's doing because you have had seasoned plastic surgeons finish the residency program that have a concentration in aesthetic surgery. Yeah, I think I have a substantially easier job than Amanda has <laughs> because I am getting plastic surgeons who have already finished their plastic surgery training, who have demonstrated an interest to be aesthetic surgeons. And there's also, and this is what I was going to ask Amanda about, there's a clear delineation about whose patient it is. You know, when, when we are in aesthetic surgery and someone's coming to have a surgical procedure with me, it's really clear that I'm doing their surgical procedure. And a fellow is there from, a, from one of my patients to basically watch, take notes, glean, have a conversation. They're not doing anything of any real value. You know, in most fellow clinics, they have a very robust clinic where they have their own series of patients that they treat. And so there's a clear delineation about whose patients, whose patient it is. When we trained, and I know when Amanda trained at UT Southwestern, which was a very different program than it is right now, just in terms of, you know, we had a lot more autonomy as residents. And so it's not my dog. <laughs> but, but I, so I was going to say, so, so my question for Amanda is, how do you balance that? And, and knowing that the world is so different than it was when we were in residency, how do you train residents that are still learning how to operate, but knowing, you know, that, that they need to be carefully, closely supervised. They maybe can't have the degree of autonomy that you might've had when you were a resident. Do you find that there's challenges that you would have never anticipated that you face when you were a resident? Yeah, it, that is an excellent question. And it is a tremendous challenge because you're absolutely right. I, I, you know, I felt when I was in residency, there were like two kind of mindsets that were very different than what I see in trainees today. One is that if I didn't know how to do it, there maybe was nobody who knew how to do it. So like that was that like drive to learn. I mean, there always was like some support, but like you really, a lot of the, you know, independent decision-making was happening at a very early phase. So you like you had to be competent. And then we also like really wanted to learn. Like we hunted for opportunities to really engage in a learning space, you know, especially, and I think there's probably some differences in kind of the setting that you're working in. But it is very difficult to create situations where the resident is really independently taking care of patients. And one of the things that I think we've done well in, at UCSD, because we've had this longitudinal in, independent program, is our resident aesthetic clinic, where now we have so many safeguards around it, but it still gives them an opportunity for patients to come in. They do the whole initial assessment, and then they have to present it at every phase where that wasn't the case in the past. So there's always more, more faculty supervision than there, you know, maybe historically has been, but it does give them kind of that front line. And they do identify to that patient that they are going to be taking care of them. 
with this person who's kind of standing behind them. We used to have a little bit more ability to do that in a reconstructive space, but it's just like, it's not really allowed anymore because, you know, just this whole kind of medical legal environment and, you know, it's people are, are, are very aware that, you know, they want to have somebody who is, you know, a licensed and board certified in that specialty be their primary caretaker. So it does make that more challenging. So that's really, I would say, our best opportunity to do that. And it's hard because you're not really seeing that full independence till very late in training. So, you know, people can be very good at being part of a team or helping, but they may not actually be able to completely fly in independence. And I don't, you know, I don't know how we can do that better earlier, but it is, I think, you know, a serious problem with just how we're training within our healthcare system. So definitely open to any suggestions. I think from surgical skills standpoint, we definitely have a lot of amazing resources to train people how to do surgery. So like the technical surgery, we have this whole Center for the Future of Surgery. They have a micro lab. They can do the technical operations. I think the challenging part, as we all know, for taking care of patients is the assessment and like coming up with a reasonable plan and then managing expectations and complications. And that is much harder to do as them being the front line. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've even noticed in some of our fellows, they don't even know how to talk to patients the way we do because they oftentimes, um, you know, they they haven't had to do that. They've just sort of been there watching surgeries or helping or assisting in surgery. So yeah, it is. Especially cosmetic patients, right? I mean, like that, it's like a whole, I feel like that's like one of the most challenging patient populations to really be able to communicate with effectively where you have that appropriate balance of shared decision-making, but like you're still in charge of guiding them towards something that's a safe solution. You know, it's, it's interesting to see them in, you know, start in that resident aesthetic clinic sometimes and they'll be like, well, they don't want this. They want this. I'm like, okay, well, you're, you're, you know, you're the surgeon and you, you need to be able to kind of help them make a decision that is going to align with what their objectives are for their outcomes. I think it's so challenging. Yeah. I think Sal's talking, but he's muted. There we go. <laughs> my, my, do my dog had a few things to say about the topic. So, so I, what I was saying was, you know, we, I think the, all of us trained at relatively, how do I say this, high intensity programs where, <laughs> yeah. where there was a, there was a tr tremendous, tremendous amount of volume and a tremendous amount of responsibility. We did not have the benefit of an 80 hour, hour work week. And it was very much the culture of. Yes, uh, just to be clear, we all actually technically did. I was on the RRC when that happens. And it actually all happened when we were residents. We just did. I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was at that meeting where it got passed. Just that's right. I, I remember when that, when that path, I was like, uh, I think it was a third year and I was still, I was on like a general surgery rotation and there were like, there was so many complications because during that transition was so hard because everybody previously took ownership for their patients. And then where they're like, you have to go home and you weren't like longitudinally responsible for your patient. It was like, it was a horrible time of transition. Right. And I, I distinctly yeah. remember the phrase, well, if you, if you go home for 12 hours, you miss half the cases, right? So, <laughs> but yes, there, there clearly is a balance now. And I, you know, we, we all have, I, I think the, the positive memories sort of outshine the negative memories of being tired and fatigued and cranky, et cetera. And it, 
And, but I, I just simply don't know how you could train as a surgeon without really pushing your mind and your body to the limits to some extent. And I mean, I think there has to be kind of a balance and a, you know, parachute for residents. And, and that's where the attending steps in. You know, I, I don't necessarily know if the, the work hours are the answer, but the, the supervisions clearly is, is part of the answer, at least. Yeah, I think it's hard too because I think that there's there are so many guardrails around residency, and then like when you get into practice, like it's totally different, right? There's no like duty hours, and you know if your patient has a complication, like you may miss some major life event for someone in your family or something like that, and you, that ownership it never, you know, it's completely conveyed when you're in training. I think you know the only. I know there's so much that we need to do to kind of align what we need to achieve during residency and these new restrictions. But for me, my approach has been really just trying to figure out what they, each individual resident is passionate about, because I think that's like their only hope for like pushing through. And can you find something that you're really compelled to learn about and and try to create, you know, and customize some of your training experience so that you like keep that fire alive. Because being a plastic surgeon or any type of medical professional is very hard. You're like with a Hippocratic oath, giving up yourself to some degree. And that's a little bit contrary, especially to like a younger generation that you're going to sacrifice yourself in a, in a time period where like my well-being, I don't, you know, is in conflict with that. So I, I don't I don't have any other kind of magical structure to force them down that other than just continually trying to find something that will drive you through a surgical career and help you strive toward excellence. So, Amanda, for example, if if, say, you were a, a resident in your in your program and you said to the chairman yourself that you are interested in in cosmetic surgery, would your chairman say, OK, <laughs> <laughs> Not a good, good idea. <laughs> you we'll let you on this little. We'll let you on this little joke here. So I'm sure you know Bill Kuzan, who was our former, former chair. Yeah. <laughs> so he was. I think he took a, a slightly different approach to leadership than you did. So, <laughs> well, I think what Val's asking is really about the culture because our culture as surgeons back then was very different. It was, you, know, you could say charitably it was more direct or, uh, you know, more blunt. Blunt. <laughs> that would be one way of saying it. And there were some pretty negative aspects to it, but there were also some positives to it. And, and I think that when I talk to academicians who are training residents, that culture is very, very different, maybe to the point where it might've swung the other way in some instances, I think. And do you feel as the head of a training program, that that's something that is a problem or not a problem for you when working with residents? Yeah, I mean, I think there's still vestiges of, of both. I think there, it, it, there may be representation on the other side of the spectrum. I think there is a lot of kind of, you know, that bias against the private sector, which you know, it was a little different, you know, training in Dallas. They, for example, like I was told, like, 
you know, my plan was to really like engage in global surgery, like as a major part of my career, which I have done. And, you know, in addition to Fresher, I have a nonprofit that we work with a lot overseas and in academic collaboration. But I mean, I remember being told by one of my leadership, like, why can't you just be normal and go buy a BMW and like go into practice like everyone else? <laughs> so, so. I that was like their mold, so I think there was like always like a little bit of like a different bias depending on on where you trained. But I I think you know we do have flexibility in training. Six years is actually a long time. I don't know how long was your training because my residency was five years. We were we were all technically six, but you had a research we, year. We were, yeah, we I had two. Sal got an MBA during his his research yeah. time, and Sam, you did two years in the lab too. So. I did, yeah, yes. And then so we were all in eight years then, huh? and then we all did fellowships, yeah. fellowships too, right. yeah. So I think there's like it's almost like residencies, like almost a little bit too long. So I think one of the opportunities now is that it is becoming a little more flexible. There's a little more accommodation from the board because you have it, there used to be such a rigid timing requirement for training. Now there is like a 12 weeks of leave that you can also do for like elective and, you know, also, you know, trying trying to accommodate family leave and things like that. So I think there is some flexibility. So, for example, I have a resident who's interested in cosmetics and going into private practice and she's a couple of years down the pike. And I was like, OK, well, you know, you need to like learn how you're going to run like a small business as you're probably going to be an independent practice as 90% of people go into a group practice are going to like break up. They're like the statistics like, I can't do that. I'm like, okay, we have like two years to figure it out. So let's create a program where we can kind of customize your elective time so that you would be better prepared to go into (laughs) independent practice. So I think we do have flexibility and I think everybody acknowledges that, you know, just for like the reference to to Kuzan and just some of this old guard that it's been like I kind of alienated, you know, kind of this alienation of the private sector. I, that's one of the things that I think is really important from an educator standpoint is that when we look at the board certification of our specialty and what people are doing over time, the vast majority of our graduates are always going to go into the private sector. And they add tremendous value to our specialty people who are, you know, like, why are you guys doing this on a Sunday? People are giving back all the time in a lot of different ways. And I think that this minority of academic plastic surgeons, which only represent 15 percent of us, have kind of driven this expectation that people need to give back in this way. But in reality, when we look at a lot of the really innovative leadership and people who have demonstrated incredible value to their local regional, national, and international communities, that a lot of it comes from our private practice sector. And as plastic surgery faces a lot of threats from the outside, we have a common ground. We have a common ground for scope of practice, for all things that we are battling with the FDA. And I think that coming from Dallas, I feel like I received such a great aesthetic education as a resident. And part of it was because they thought I was like going to go move to Africa. So I think they invested in me a lot. Because they knew for sure I was not going to, like, set up shop on the street from them. But, like, you know, I feel like that improved every single aspect of what I do as a reconstructive surgeon. And that we have to stop the separation of ourselves. Like, we are one specialty. We are a principle-based, technique-based specialty that approaches things differently than other surgeons. And I think if we could 
try to see where that common ground is more that we would really help a lot of our trainees better because right now we are in an arms race for people trying to get into plastic surgery. The average is like 10 peer review publication. The majority of those people will never publish a paper after they finish. So why are we making them go through this crazy expensive process and selecting them on criteria that are never going to correlate with what they're ultimately going to do in practice? And that's been one of kind of my goals is not just as an educator, but also being involved in our academics to see ACAPs to try to see like we need to bring in the aesthetic society. Those are amazing educators and amazing, amazing educational resources to our residents so that like my resident who identifies and is honest and has a safe place to say, I want to go in private practice. Okay, let me figure out how we can help you to be the best at that position instead of like just going out and winging it. It's like somebody from business school going out and doing a facelift. Like you're going to be a small business owner. It's not just the surgical skill. Like how do you manage your people so you don't end up on the headlines or in some like social media you know, blacklist. They're, these are like skills that people need to learn business skills as well as, you know, you know, just how to be in this good aesthetic surgeon. Well, Amanda, that's, these are incredible insights. And, you know, you and I have, have worked together a bit in, in the professional society, such as the aesthetic society. I know you're involved with the ASPS and the association of academic chairmen. And, you know, your, your leadership is, is really paramount and it's, you know, we love having you on to kind of talk about some of the, your philosophies and training. And it's really, you know, it's really admirable to see you joining the two ends of the spectrum, the private world and the, the academic world. Chance, any, any last questions for Amanda? No, that, this has been incredibly insightful and it's really encouraging to actually hear someone who is prominent in academic plastic surgery having such a positive outlook towards plastic surgery. Just one slight comment. There's two of us that actually have MBAs and go out and do facelifts right now. That's me and Bichella. So, <laughs> but beyond that, I agree with everything you said. But you're also a plastic surgeon, right? I know, I, yeah, I think that. <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks to our listeners. And Amanda, have a great Sunday. We appreciate you having, having you on. Absolutely. Thanks so much. I really appreciated it.